Hello everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 16, The Diadochi, Heirs of Alexander. Last time, we covered the fierce Keltoi of Gaul and how their powerful nature and reckless courage gave fits to the Greeks and Romans to the south. Continuing our tour of the state of the Mediterranean around 300 BC, we now turn our attention to the east, where the Diadochi, heirs to Alexander the Great, had managed to make an incredible mess of the great Macedonians' once celebrated empire. If you are worried about when we are going to get back to the narrative of Carthage, rest assured that after the next episode, we will be hurtling our way into the beginnings of the First Punic War. For today's episode, if you feel a little rusty on Alexander the Great and Macedon, I gave a brief overview of the rise of Macedon and Alexander's father, Philip, back in episode 9, if you want to brush up on his beginnings. In order to fully appreciate the political climate and culture of the Hellenic successor kingdoms in 300 BC, and how their struggles contributed to the instability of the times, we have to backtrack quickly to cover the spectacular rise and fall of Alexander himself. I'd recommend you take a look at the map on the website to follow along as we discuss the locations of these kingdoms. You will find a link in the description. Born in July 356 BC, Alexander the Great was the son of King Philip II of Macedon and Olympias, daughter of the king of the Molossians. Olympias came from the kingdom known in antiquity as Epirus, a small Greek region in what is now Albania. In the coming episodes, keep Epirus in mind, for it would briefly rise to world prominence under one of Alexander's relatives in later years threatening the fledgling Roman Republic and playing an indirect role in bringing on the First Punic War. Several dramatic portents and incidents supposedly heralded Alexander's birth, including visions of lightning striking his mother's womb, Philip's chariot horses winning a race at the Olympic Games, and the burning down of the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Whether or not such momentous events coincided with his birth, Alexander clearly possessed remarkable talent and energy from an early age. Trained after the fashion of noble Macedonian youths, which included an extensive classical education under the famed Aristotle, in addition to the more traditional lessons in arms, horsemanship, and athletics, Alexander excelled in all he turned his hand to. One famous example occurred when, as a young boy, Alexander tamed the ungovernable horse Bucephalus by deducing that the horse was afraid of its own shadow. After turning the horse so that it could not see its shadow and speaking soothingly to it, Alexander succeeded in riding it, winning his father's trust and admiration in the process. Bucephalus would carry Alexander through nearly all his campaigns until the Battle of the Hydaspes River. 
Plutarch describes Alexander's physical appearance as being fair-skinned with expressive eyes, a sweet odor surrounding him, and a habit of cocking his neck slightly to the left, a peculiar mannerism that his successors religiously mimicked to identify themselves with their great forebear. The Greek historian Arian, in his book The Anabasis, declares that Alexander also had heterochromia iridum, with one blue eye and one dark brown one. We even know his favorite book, a copy of Homer's Iliad, which had been annotated by his mentor, Aristotle. Even as a young man, Alexander gained renown for his bravery and skill at warfare, personally contributing to his father's resounding victory over the Greek city-states at Coronia. Despite working closely with Philip in several campaigns, the two eventually fell out over both Philip's numerous wives and his infidelity towards Alexander's mother, Olympias. There are even some suspicions that Olympias and Alexander may have conspired to assassinate Philip in 336 BC, although, to be fair, there remain several other suspects. Regardless, at the tender age of 20, Alexander inherited his father's professional army as well as Philip's plans to attack the Persian Empire in the east. Though the Persians controlled a vast landscape stretching from the Indus Valley to Greece herself, Alexander felt confident that he could give the Persians a stiff fight with his father's highly trained phalangites, who fought in an extremely dense phalanx formation with 20-foot-long sarissa pikes, and the elite Macedonian companion cavalry, heavily armed with lance and copus sword. After consolidating his rule in Macedon and Greece, Alexander crossed into Asia Minor in 336 BC with a small army of 35,000 to 45,000 men. Stopping at Gordium in central Anatolia, Alexander determined to solve the famed riddle of the Gordian Knot, a knotted mass of rope which legend held that whoever undid the knot will become king of all Asia. Taking his sword, Alexander cut the knot in half, claiming that he had solved the riddle, though I suspect some would have been tempted to accuse him of cheating. Nonetheless, such stories continued to build up the legends already surrounding him at this early stage, cloaking him in an almost mythical aura. Following this exploit, Alexander led a series of lightning campaigns up and down the breadth of the Persian Empire, defeating the hapless King of Kings, Darius III, in the decisive battles of Issus and Galgamela, successively defeating two Persian armies which perhaps numbered as large as a quarter of a million men. Along the way, he sacked Carthage's mother city, Tyre, in a brutal siege subdued Egypt and the Levant, and continued to push east. Marching into India, he became one of the first Greeks to ever encounter war elephants. Despite these frightening beasts, 
Alexander crushed the Indian king Porus in the Battle of the Hydaspes River. But by this point, his men, exhausted after nearly ten years of continuous campaigning, mutinied and demanded that the army go home. Reluctantly, Alexander acquiesced to their request, returning to the ancient city of Babylon to organize his new world empire. Determined to make Babylon his new capital, Alexander, now called the Great, began to aggrandize himself by taking on the heirs of an oriental emperor, dressing in Persian regal robes and requiring his visitors to bow to the earth, a custom carried over from the old Persian court, much to the annoyance of his grizzled veterans from Macedonia. As the wealth of Asia and Europe flowed into his treasury and countless realms submitted to his rule, Alexander's ambitions grew even greater. He began to hatch grand schemes of fusing the Persians and Greeks into one people, even performing a mass marriage at one point between his officers and soldiers and Persian noblewomen. Besides this massive domestic experiment, Alexander dreamed up more modest proposals, such as building a colossal tomb for his father in Macedon, intended to rival the pyramids of the pharaohs, dispatching an expedition to circumnavigate Africa, and organizing a campaign to conquer the Arabian Peninsula. As we discussed back in episode 9, rumors circulated that Alexander planned to march west once he had consolidated his rule in Persia and his agenda likely included a campaign to assault Carthage herself. Besides the diplomats from Carthage, intent on discovering what kind of threat Alexander posed, embassies from the Italians, Etruscans, Gauls, Ethiopians, Scythians, and Iberians all made the long trek to Babylon to simultaneously pay homage to the great king as well as gauge his next move. Unsurprisingly, this sudden influx of almost limitless power, wealth, and prestige seems to have gone slightly to Alexander's head. He began to be more and more aloof and arrogant in his dealings with his men, to the point of driving them to another serious mutiny. To make matters worse, Alexander who had always struggled with alcoholism and a hasty temper, killed one of his friends in a drunken brawl, and although he repented deeply of the act after he sobered up, the deed still shocked his men. Besides this, Alexander had always claimed descent from the gods, a common practice of Greek rulers, but his emphasis on practices which contributed to his personal deification such as requiring his guests to bow to the earth, could not help but irritate the more conservative Macedonians. There continued to be friction between Alexander and his once loyal veterans, and though these men had followed him to the ends of the earth, it now seemed like a serious fallout was at hand. But before the final break could occur, a greater threat appeared. For all his lofty claims to divinity, by 323 BC, 
at the age of 32, Alexander the Great, the self-proclaimed demigod who ruled the largest empire the world had yet seen, lay dying of a fever after a night of heavy drinking. By the eleventh day of his illness, he had become too weak to walk, but in a gesture of reconciliation, he allowed his soldiers to file by his bedside one last time to say goodbye. With no clear line of succession, his generals and bodyguards, men who had fought with him from the moment he crossed into Asia Minor to his last days in Babylon, gathered around his bedside and asked who should lead his empire when he was gone. He replied, to the strongest. In spite of his failings, Alexander the Great stands as one of history's greatest generals and statesmen. Bold, heroic, and persevering, he nearly always led from the front, suffering wounds from the spear, sword, javelin, arrow, and sling over the course of his military career. Off the battlefield, he was always accessible to his men, even in his final days, and on campaign, he endured the same hardships and socialized freely with them. He could be incredibly generous to his veterans at times, relieving them of their debts and rewarding them with rich gifts of land and money. His brilliant mind allowed him to quickly grasp the potential of any given situation and exploit it to its fullest, while his daring spirit allowed him to carry out his well-laid plans with consummate precision and skill. Even though he fought countless battles, he remained undefeated to the end of his life, the greatest of the Greek commanders and one of the greatest generals the world would ever see. In the wake of such a man, Alexander's officers must have felt that they had a nigh-impossible task on their hands in choosing his successor. These generals and officers would come to be known as the Diadochi, which means the successors. Before the body of Alexander had grown cold, a chaotic scene ensued. Alexander's bodyguards, high-ranking men from the Macedonian nobility who served as his main generals, attempted to hold a council in conjunction with the other officers to determine the fate of Alexander's empire. Contrary to the general's wishes, the common soldiers forced their way into the room and insisted that their voices be heard. Several candidates were initially considered, including Alexander's illegitimate son, Heracles, his half-brother, Aridaeus, his unborn child by his new wife, Roxana, and the senior Macedonian general, Perdiccas. Dissension soon broke out, and the council nearly degenerated into blows at multiple points until the generals finally agreed to crown Aridaeus and Alexander's child, assuming Roxana gave birth to a son, as joint kings of the empire, with Perdiccas as regent. After a brief power struggle, the other generals became satraps or governors of large swaths of the empire. 
unsurprisingly, this unstable situation did not last long. Seeking to consolidate his own position, Perdiccas overreached himself by attempting to marry Alexander's sister, Cleopatra. Fearing that Perdiccas sought the throne for himself, the other generals rallied together to resist him. Making his own power play, the general Ptolemy stole Alexander's body and removed it to Egypt, prompting Perdiccas to declare war. What could have been an epic confrontation ended in an anticlimax, for Perdiccas was assassinated by his own men, and the reconciled generals proceeded to divvy out the empire once again. What followed was nearly 20 years of civil war between the Diadochi, which resulted in widespread devastation. Since the Diadochi utilized the same cavalry and phalanx tactics of their master Alexander, as well as the remnants of Alexander's veteran pikemen and companion cavalry, the Diadochi began an arms race to gain the upper hand against their rivals, employing vast numbers of war elephants imported from India and Africa, side chariots, and other exotic battalions to throw their enemies off. The employment of huge numbers of mercenaries flooded the Mediterranean with adventurers, ruthless, countryless men, ready and willing to profit off the confusion of the times. Beneath the squabbling Diagdoki, a host of lesser captains, demagogues, and tyrants, similar to Agathocles, jockeyed for position, each seeking to carve out a realm for himself while the successors focused on each other. Amid the battles, confusion, and intrigue of those times, Alexander's mother, Olympias, his wife, Roxana, his half-brother, Eridaeus, and his newborn son all perished. Finally, in 301 BC, at the decisive battle of Ipsus, the Diadochi settled the fate of the empire. In this gigantic showdown, the general Antigonus, who controlled most of Greece and Asia Minor, fought a combined force commanded by Lysimachus, Cassander, and Seleucus, who collectively controlled Macedonia, the eastern half of Asia Minor, and Persia. The two armies employed a huge number of war elephants between them, over 475 elephants altogether and the mighty Indian elephants of Seleucus proved decisive in driving off the cavalry of Antigonus, frightening the horses by their towering height, their trumpeting, and their smell. With Antigonus's cavalry out of the picture, the allies managed to threaten the vulnerable flank of his phalanx, forcing his infantry to either flee or desert to the allies. In the rout, Antigonus was surrounded and killed, completing the defeat of his army. Following the decisive battle of Ipsus, the remaining Diadochi managed to impose some semblance of order on the situation. For the final time, the generals carved up the remains of Alexander's empire, leaving Egypt to Ptolemy, Asia Minor to Lysimachus, and Persia and Babylon to Seleucus.
After Seleucus defeated Lysimachus in 281 BC, he formed the Seleucid Empire, the largest of the successor kingdoms, stretching from the Aegean Sea to the Indus River. Ptolemy continued to control the splendid region of Egypt, eventually taking the title of Pharaoh and establishing the Ptolemaic Kingdom, centered on Alexandria, a realm which merged elements of Hellenistic and Egyptian culture into a unique melting pot. His kingdom would be the longest lasting of the successor realms, only ending with the death of the famed Cleopatra in 30 BC after her defeat suffered at the hands of the Romans. Macedonia and Greece fluctuated back and forth between numerous successors and their descendants, and Macedonia and Epirus in particular clashed in violent contests with the rapidly expanding Roman Republic. Besides these major kingdoms, a host of smaller powers, such as the Bactrian and Greco-Indian territories in the Far East, jostled for the scraps left over by their colossal neighbors. What does all this turmoil and upheaval have to do with the history of Carthage, you ask? Despite Alexander's threatened western campaign, Carthage suffered nothing from his hands, save the destruction of her mother city Tyre, while the Roman historian Livy states that he doubts the Romans had even heard of Alexander, even after his complete conquest. Other than Macedon and Epirus, the other successor kingdoms only tangentially affected the Punic Wars, being too preoccupied with their own quarrels. However, the influence of Alexander and his successors could be felt far across the Mediterranean, even though their armies rarely physically intervened in the events in the West. As we have seen in the desperate attempts of Agathocles to identify himself with the great Macedonian, Alexander's otherworldly success made him the defining template of a successful general and ruler, not just for the Greeks, but for all the leaders who would follow. Hannibal Barca himself incorporated and improved upon the strategies and tactics of Alexander, and from him, the Romans learned to study and copy the methods of the greatest of the Hellenic kings. Similarly, the failure of the Diadochi to hold the empire together and the ensuing chaos destabilized the surrounding states by flooding the Mediterranean with highly trained and highly unscrupulous mercenary bands, adventurer captains, and petty princes who roamed the region seeking to establish their own private empire in the vein of Alexander's. These aggressive campaigns would cause Carthage to intercede more vigorously in Sicily to control men like Agathocles, while Rome would be dragged into a war with a successor kingdom over the Greek cities of southern Italy. These events put the two empires on a collision course which would decide the fate of the world. Next time, we will briefly touch on the rise of Rome, the bane of Carthage. Until then, take care 
and to read more history.